the community of Christ in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I do want to share with you a resource that has really uh, encouraged me in my study over the last couple of weeks as I've been preparing. It is a very, uh, it's a thin book, but a very deep book uh, called Delighting in the Trinity. Uh, I will have a copy of this on the back table. You're welcome to it. And uh, it's the one that I have not marked in. So uh, please take it, read through it. Um, it will just, uh, it, along with me, I think it will cause you just to rejoice in how God reveals himself in his fullness through his word. So um, take advantage of this and uh, I'll put this on the back table um, after the service is over. The passage that uh, I've been asked to begin with this morning is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and we'll read verses 11 and 12. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Let's pray together. Father, today we have the privilege of speaking of you. And so, Lord, I ask that you would protect us from our own imagined versions of you. Keep us from idolatry in our hearts. Keep us from setting up gods that we think are you, but that look nothing like you and are no gods at all. Please show us your own true glory from the Scriptures and help our hearts to desire to imitate you. And we ask this in the name of Jesus and through the love of your Holy Spirit. Amen. I have been asked uh, today to make a case for the church as a community using the passage we just read. Uh, so to start, let's define the word community. Uh, it comes, uh, I think, in its most basic definition to us as a unified body of individuals. And we can look around us and see communities. We see uh, people who refer to themselves as communities. We see homes that are set up in communities. We see uh, Westerville as a community that we are part of. And we see ourselves, the body of Christ, as a community here at Providence. That word community comes from the Latin word communitas. I hope I pronounced it right. Uh, this can be broken down into two Latin words, the word con or co, meaning together, and munis, meaning pertaining to public services. So you can imagine how then that word combines to make the word community that we know about. And, and maybe Westerville would be probably the most accurate definition using that word. We tend to use community very casually when it comes to how we relate to each other in the church. And I think that we'll see from the scripture this morning that we must go far deeper than just the word community as we talk about what we are to be as a body of believers. We must go deeper than merely a group of people unified around a set of ideals. That would be nice. We all hope for that, but the Scripture calls us to something more. In the passage that we just read, Paul reminds the church in Thessalonica 
of His ministry to them. And He has gone on a little bit before that passage, talking about how He came to them, what He preached to them. And He summarizes His teachings like this. Just to quote this passage, I charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. And so maybe to help us understand how this relates to us as a community, we can ask a couple of questions. Uh, In the context of community, number one, how can we walk in a manner worthy of God? That's a high calling. In the context of church community, how can we walk in a manner worthy of God? And number two, better get to this slide because it's on a timer. Number two, what does God's kingdom and glory look like as it relates to the church community? What does God's kingdom and glory look like as it relates to the church community? My hope, my goal is that by the end of this time we'll be able to answer these questions and see more clearly what it means to be in community with one another. There's a little bit of an issue with that though. If we start to see more clearly what it means to be in community, often the more clearly we see something, the more we realize how much left uh, we have to understand. And so I'll give you an example as soon as the slide switches. In 1995, the Hubble Space Telescope turned its cameras to the skies and took a picture of the Eagle Nebula and a formation within that nebula called the Pillars of Creation. We're going to wait for this to change and I'll show you the Pillars of Creation. The Hubble Space Telescope, very clear cameras, a lot of different things you can see visually, you can see infrared, Uh, And this is a visual representation of that nebula. I'm also going to show you in a moment an updated picture from 2014. So the Hubble Space Telescope always improving its software, always improving uh, what it's looking at and how it sees it. This is, let's go back. This is the Pillars of Creation from 1995. It's hard to see in the light, but I hope you can kind of just see a little bit of an outline. We looked at that in 1995 and we thought, isn't that amazing? And so as the mission of the Hubble continued, we actually took a much better picture of it. And we begin to see some of the stars around it. We begin to see through some of that cloud. And we start to see that beyond those pillars of creation and within those pillars of creation are stars and formations of stars and things that we cannot even begin to imagine. In the last several years, we launched the James Webb Space Telescope. And last year in August, it pointed its camera at this exact same uh, cloud, and we got this. With very similar perspective, we can now begin to see that we know nothing and have known nothing about that area of the sky. Uh, if, you want, if you want to geek out about that, I would encourage you to go online. You can find pictures comparing Hubble and Webb and see how very little we knew. And probably, if you extrapolate outward, how much more, how much less, I should say, we know than is actually out there. The point is, the more that we understand about that formation, the more we understand how little we actually know. And I think that the same thing applies to the community of the church. The more we begin to understand about God's desire for unity 
in our body, the more we understand how far we have to go to achieve it. So to get a little bit better of an understanding, we're going to leave our assigned passage in 1 Thessalonians and go to the book of John, chapter 17. We were there this morning as we read Scripture together, but would you turn in your Bibles to John, chapter 17. I sincerely believe that the general idea of Christian community is one that we at Providence are very familiar with. I had a conversation with some of you several years back. We were thinking about putting together a video. We didn't have the right equipment at the time. But the thing that I asked most people, if you had one word to describe Providence, what would it be? And that word was family. A family is a very tight-knit community, maybe even more so, probably more so, than a community that we would see out in the world. And so I think we're very familiar with the idea of community here at Providence. And if I were to ask you what it means to be in community as a member of Providence, I think we could all come up with the right answers. We've heard all the sermons on the one another's, love one another, greet one another, honor one another, and so on. But the scripture asks us to go beyond the one another's and to go beyond merely serving together. John chapter 17, verses 20 through 26 We read it together earlier, a little bit of a mouthful, so I just want to read it with a little more context. Jesus is praying for us, and he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. There is no more simple statement, I believe, in Scripture describing how the people of God should look in community. Togetherness cannot be any closer than the oneness that Jesus is describing. And we can look at that, I think, and and we can go, oh, that's really sweet, you know, for us to be so close together, so close to to each other, that it's it's almost as if we're one person. That's that's a really beautiful thing. But, But just a small problem with that, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said that they may be one even as we are one. Speaking of Him and God the Father. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Just like a deeper look into space gives us a sense of growing awe and the understanding that maybe a backyard rocket ship can't take us to Alpha Centauri, I think a greater understanding of Christ's desire for unity in the church gives us as well a growing sense of awe and maybe a bit of a a, a twinge of concern that maybe we can't just get there by ourselves. Maybe some church growth model won't accomplish the unity 
that we have been asked and called to in Jesus Christ. So we ask, if we're to be one as God the Father and God the Son are one, how are they one? In order for us to understand how we are to be one, we must try to understand how the three persons of God are one. That is a a tall order for us today. Hunter uh, alluded to this a little bit two weeks ago. We cannot speak of God's threeness without also speaking of his oneness in the Trinity. So we're going to spend just a, a few minutes trying to understand a little more about God himself. Uh, we'll glean some truths from the uh, scripture about the Trinity and then try to apply them to ourselves here at Providence. So I'm going to be going through some of the activities, how God related to himself before creation, how he relates to us after creation. There's going to be a lot of scriptures, so I would say, uh, kind of like our, our first speaker did, you don't have to turn to all of them. I'll give you a gist of that scripture, but if you're taking notes, write them down, and then I'll be emailing just kind of generally these scripture passages to you uh, this week. First, let's look at the Father. God the Father is identified in Scripture as the first member of the Trinity. He's referenced as the Father throughout the Old Testament, and that's how Jesus relates to God the Father. And in fact, it's how Jesus introduces Him to us. So what was God the Father, the first member of the Trinity, doing before creation? Well, we see through Scripture that He was rejoicing in the joy and pleasure of the unity that he had with the Son and the Spirit. Psalm 16.11 is a passage you can write down. It says, In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The Scripture tells us that in eternity past, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were rejoicing in the joy and pleasure of their unity. He was also relating to the Son and to the Spirit. John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In the beginning, before time existed and before the creation, God related to His Son. He was also loving His Son. John chapter 17, from our passage this morning, Father, I desire that they also, whom You've given Me, may be with Me where I am, to see My glory that You have given Me, because You loved Me before the foundation of the world. God's love as a Father was expressed to His Son in eternity past. Fourthly, He was planning for us. And He was acting in concert with the Son and the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 says, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. 2 Timothy 1.9, who saved us, and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. As we continue and see in the Son and the Spirit the activities before creation, we will see that there was no sitting around, twiddling thumbs, navel-gazing. It was God actively loving Himself Loving Jesus Christ, loving the Holy Spirit, 
and working in community and in partnership with all three members of the Trinity to already begin to accomplish His plan. God has not rested from eternity past other than on purpose in the seventh day. God is always working and working to form in us the image of His Son as we'll see what He is doing after creation. So that's what He was doing before creation. What was He doing after creation? And I will say, God doesn't change. God is immutable. He has been and He always will be the Father. Uh, So it stands to reason that He's doing similar things as He was before creation. He is, first of all, rejoicing in His people. Zephaniah 3.17 The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. He is relating to us, secondly. The, The whole Sermon on the Mount talks about how we are to live in this new kingdom that God is bringing to us. And it's also how God relates to us as a father. It's, it's a pretty revolutionary passage, a pretty revolutionary sermon. The Jews at the time had heard of God as the father of their nation. But Jesus, throughout the Sermon on the Mount, refers to God as their individual father. Just a, a brief passage from there. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Jesus is teaching the people and teaching us by extension that God the Father has been and continues to relate to them as a Father. Not just Creator, not just Sustainer, not just Ruler, but as a Father. Hebrews 12.7 speaks to us It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. He's relating to you. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? He's loving us. Uh, Number three, John 3.16. We all know this passage. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And then fourthly, along with the Son and the Spirit, He is accomplishing His plans for His glory and His kingdom. Ephesians uh, 2, 4 through 7, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Just put a pin in this thought for a moment. God is identified in Scripture primarily as our Father and the Father of Jesus Christ. He's a creator, He's a ruler, He's a sustainer, but first and foremost, He is a Father. Jesus identifies with Him in that way. And it's the way that we primarily identify with Him as well. And as a Father, He gives us His love. He gives us gifts. He reaches out to us when we're weak and we've scraped our knee and we're sitting on the sidewalk. He disciplines us. He is truly our Father. Save that thought and we'll come back to it. Uh, Let's look at the Son. And I know this is a, a lot of information. Like I said, I'll send this to you. But I think it's important for us to see because it establishes a foundation for us as the church. 
the Son. God identifies Jesus as His Son at the baptism and at the transfiguration. And even in the Old Testament, in 2 Samuel 7, God is speaking to David and He's referring to David's offspring to Solomon. There's a prophetic reference in that passage to the Sonship of Christ. He says, I will be to Him a Father and He will be to me a Son. And so Jesus, as the Son of God before creation, was doing many things. First of all, He was relating to God as Father. We've read John chapter 1. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. And in order for Him to make the Father known, He would have had to know Him as Father. Number two, He was, and I think this is super cool, He was creating a place for us to live. John 1, 3. All things were made through Him, through Jesus. And without Him was not anything made that was made. Uh, number three, He was working in concert with the Father. Uh, in John 5.17 at the pool of Bethesda, Jesus answered and He said, My Father is working until now and I am working. And number four, He was preparing Himself to be a sacrifice. In Acts 2.23, it says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. John 10 verse 18 says, No one takes my life from me, uh, verse 17, actually, this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. What was Jesus doing after the creation? Uh, first of all, He was relating to us. John 1, uh, and he's relating the Father to us especially. John 1, 13, verse 12 and 13, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the entire chapter of John 17, the high priestly prayer, he is relating to us and relating the Father to us. Secondly, and again, uh, kind of cool, he created a place for us to live in the creation. He's also creating a place for us to live right now. John 14, 2 and 3. It seems to be one of Jesus' favorite things to do is to create spaces for us to live with the Father. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Jesus is still, even after creation, working in concert with the Father. John 5, 36 and 37. And if it seems like we've got a ton of verses from the book of John, that is the purpose of John's Gospel, is to show us the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ, so that we would believe. John chapter 5, verses 36 and 37, Jesus says, For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has Himself borne witness about me. Jesus, even now, is working in concert and in coordination with the Father. And then fourthly, sacrificing Himself for His creation. We all know the passage from Philippians 2, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. 
He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Jesus' identity forever is the Son. And He reciprocates from eternity past the love of the Father that He receives back to the Father and then He shares that love with us, His brothers and sisters. Scripture tells us that He is the firstborn among us. That He is the one who proceeds from the Father and goes back to the Father. He is the one who gives us access to God Himself. God is Father. Jesus is Son. Let's leave those two and keep a pen in those as well. And now the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is identified in Scripture as the one who facilitates the presence and the work of God in our lives. He's the one who points us back to Jesus Christ. Scripture tells us that He's the author of Scripture. He's our comforter. He's a convictor of sin. He is the down payment of the inheritance that we receive at salvation. He's our guide. He's our intercessor. He's the revealer of truth. He's our teacher and He's so much more than that. He tends to be, if we look in Scripture, in the background compared to the upfront and open acts of God the Father and God the Son. But I would encourage you, if you get the chance and you haven't yet, read C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. There's a chapter in there called Good Infection, uh, which I didn't think that that was going to be about the Holy Spirit, but it turned out to be about the Holy Spirit. And he really does an amazing job of helping us understand the role that the Spirit has in our lives. He illustrates it like this. God the Father is in front of us, and we direct our relationship with the Trinity to Him. God the Son is beside us, showing us the Father, bringing us into His presence. And God the Spirit is within us, receiving the love of the Father within us, and then pouring it back toward Him through the love that we have for God. We don't have really specific details as to what the Spirit was doing before creation. Genesis 1 tells us He was hovering over the face of the water. But we can understand His role after creation in these couple of ways. First of all, He expresses the love of the Father to His sons. First of all and foremost, to Christ. Christ's baptism in Matthew 3 When Jesus was baptized, immediately He went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to Him, and He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on Him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is My beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. In that moment, God's love was poured out on Christ, and the visual representation of that was the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove. The Holy Spirit also expresses the love of the Father to us. Romans 5.5 5. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The Holy Spirit also then, as we receive the love of the Father, inflames our hearts and the hearts of all sons of God toward their Father. And then... Uh, in reciprocation, also towards each other. Romans eight fifteen through 17 the Spirit allows us to cry, Abba, Father, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, 
Father, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Galatians 4 gives us the same words. We also see that there is a fellowship of the Spirit. The Spirit uh, inflames our hearts not just towards God, but towards each other. 2 Corinthians 13 refers to the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And Scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit is the actual indwelling of God. He's the tangible relationship between God and man. And I I love the way that C.S. Lewis puts it in Mere Christianity. The union between the Father and the Son is such a live, concrete thing that this union itself is also a person. He's very real. He's very alive. He is the very personal connection we have to our Father. He is the embodiment of God's love to you. So much so that the very love of the Father, the very comfort of the Son, now resides in you as believers in the form of the Spirit of God. So if these are true, if God is always Father, if Jesus is always Son, and if the Spirit is always an expression of the love that God has for the Son and for us, among other things, then God as a Trinity cannot exist as a separated being all His own. He must coexist with other members of the Trinity. There's no way to break out these three parts and make them into individuals by themselves. Because their identities are so tied up in each other that they cannot be separated. A couple of notes about this. First of all, their activity together. We never see in Scripture, and I alluded to this earlier, we never see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit navel-gazing. They do not sit and think about themselves as individuals at all. And, And please bear with this example. But God the Father does not turn away from God the Son and from God the Spirit and think, boy, the Son is sure acting a little crazy today. I'm going to give Him a few minutes and I'm just going to take some me time. That is not at all what the relationship of God is within the Trinity. Instead, and admittedly they are perfect, so they never have down days, but instead there is an unceasing and untiring love and service from each member of the Godhead to each of the other members. In Exodus 34.14, we see that God is a jealous God. For you will worship no other God. The Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Where there is jealousy, it is only jealousy for the glory of the Trinity. Where there is anger, in Matthew 21, where Jesus throws out the moneylenders from the temple, it is anger for the purity of the Father's place of worship. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are always looking out for the best interests of each other as a trinity. They're only always outward focused. And secondly, just as Hunter reminded us, while we have spoken of them as three, we must speak of them as one. Not just one in purpose, right? And not just so close that they seem like they're one. They are in fact one God, eternal in nature, 
with no divisions. The three persons of the Trinity cannot exist apart from each other. They must be three. They find their identities in each other. God cannot be a father from eternity past without having a son. The son cannot be a son from eternity past without having a father. The Spirit of God's love cannot exist without the love of God and without the relationship between God and the Son and the Spirit. They cannot exist apart from each other, and yet they must also be entirely one. If there were three entities separate from each other, then they could not be self-existent, they could not be self-sufficient. God Himself makes it clear through the book of Isaiah that He is not like the innumerable man-made deities that we found in Canaan and in Egypt and in other lands of the time. Those, those deities, those false gods, were nothing. They were statues who could not answer. But God is Himself. He exists within Himself. He does not need us to create an image for Him. He is one. And Jesus Himself taught that God uh, is one. That He is one with God, but also that there is only one God. Any attempt on our part to imagine the triune God as more than one or less than three turns our vision of Him into a God, small g, of our own making. Any attempt on our part to imagine the triune God as more than one or less than three turns our vision of Him into a God of our own making. And it's almost as if we took all of our jewelry, melted it down, made a statue of a calf, bowed in front of it and said, Behold the gods which brought you out of Egypt. We like to think right, that those people in Israel, they were a little crazy. What was with the golden calf? But we so often try to imagine God in our own ways and make Him like what we want Him to look like. And we cannot do that. This is why the gods of other religions can never measure up to the true God. If Allah is eternally loving, as the Quran tells us, then who did He love in eternity past? There was no sun. There was no creation. If He is only loving, then once He creates, then He cannot be immutable, as the Quran also tells us. Our God is the true God. And He does whatever He pleases, the Scripture says. So, that was like drinking out of a fire hose. You just got uh, my theology proper class in like, I don't know, half an hour. Um, but let's take a few things that we've learned and let's bring them back to John chapter 17. How do we, how do we as Providence Church, begin to relate to each other in the same way that God relates to Himself in the Trinity? Now, obviously, we will never be God, but we are commanded in Scripture to imitate Him as our Father. And so Jesus, as He... Praise in John chapter 17. Praise these things for us. That they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That is a tall order. So first of all, let's think about our imitation of God towards each other as individuals as Providence Church, as members, as, as believers, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we can imitate the way that God relates to Himself. And these are the one another's that we read in Scripture. First of all, we find joy 
in our lives together. 2 Corinthians 13, and, and here's a, a kind of a doozy of a verse. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. We find joy just as God does in His relationship within the Trinity. We also find joy in our lives together in Christ. Secondly, we serve each other. First Peter 4, 7, actually we'll start in verse 9. Uh, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. We are to serve one another. We are to work with each other. Ephesians 4, a very familiar passage. We've talked about it many times. Ephesians 4 and, and uh, talks about the, the body of Christ. Um, Hunter went through it on a couple of weeks ago. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We're to find joy, we're to serve, we're to work with each other. We are to love each other. If the essence of the relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is love, that also should be the essence of our relationship in the body of believers. The entire book of 1 John is predicated on this truth. John chapter 13. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. First John 4, 7 and 8, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. These are the one another's that we know. But now we can look then from John chapter 17 at the standard we are called to we are called to imitate God in these things. In love, in joy, in sacrifice. And God, the Father, and God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, is perfect in all of them. All too often, though, for us, we stand in our own way of even beginning to walk down that road towards love and joy and sacrifice and serving together. There's a, a fiction book that C.S. Lewis wrote called Paralandra. Uh, in that book, it's part of his space trilogy, he retells the creation story and, and he, he sets up the Eve character and he calls her in this book the Green Lady. And in that book, the temptation that is given to the Green Lady is a mirror. For the first time, she sees in herself, or she sees herself, in a mirror. And she begins to look in that mirror and her gaze becomes for a moment so focused inward that all she can think about is herself. Hear what I mean and maybe not what I say. Practically, to be like our Father, we must turn away from the mirror. Mirrors cause us to dwell on ourselves. And maybe it's an actual mirror. 
Maybe we're checking ourselves out. Maybe we're looking at it all the time. But maybe it can be a phone. Maybe it can be a TV. Maybe it's, it's anything in our lives that causes us to turn away from the body that God has put us in and causes us to turn inward and reflect only on what's good for us. We are called to imitate God by being so outward focused on each other that we become inseparable. How do we get there? Uh, We've read a couple of passages and they all allude to this. The power of the Spirit. The Spirit turns our gaze outward from within ourselves where it's dark and, and secret and hidden and it turns our gaze outward towards each other. It turns our gaze towards the body of Christ and towards, more specifically, towards Christ Himself who then brings us to the Father. It's hard to do. It takes some sacrifice. It takes pain. It takes... Uh, it's, it's a difficult time to turn our attention often away from ourselves. And, and it's why we've been, uh, just even these past weeks, challenging you with little moments like what Patrick referenced this morning. Take a few moments and think about the body that God has called you to here at Providence and find a way to serve them. Maybe you'd rather be doing whatever it is that you wanted to be doing. But find a way to serve someone that God has called you to a community with. That's how we interact as individuals. How do we act as a unified body? Back to Jesus' words in John 17, that they may be one even as we are one, I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. I cannot explain this to you. I've thought about it. I've tried to find words that would allow me to tell you what it's like to be so unified as a body of believers that we are not just a group of people who look like one, but that we are truly one. And there's a mystery there that comes from the uniting of our hearts through the Spirit of God. It's a mystery that makes us look a whole lot different than any other community that the world can put in front of us. Our world talks about community a lot. Those communities are a variety of different things. But our community looks different because we are unified in love. Love your neighbor as yourself. We are unified through the Spirit. And we are giving our lives for each other. Greater love has no man than this than a man lay down his life for his friend. Our community, just like the Trinity, is not a passive community. Oh, I really like these people. I'm going to hang out with them every, every week once or, once or twice. Our community as a body of believers must be an active one. A community that is every day seeking to perform the good of another, to act on the good of each other. A community that is striving to outdo one another in showing honor. And interestingly, we, we, I told you to put a pin in the identity of God and uh, the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit. Their identities are wrapped up in each other. Our world talks about identity incessantly right now. There is not a moment when you can look 
at the world and not hear a conversation around identity. And in fact, the identity politics that we hear so much of are because people find their identity in how others feel about them. But our identity is so different. Our identity is not based on how you feel about me or how I feel about you. Our identity is found united in Jesus Christ. We cannot be distinguished from Him and we cannot be distinguished from each other if our identity is found in Him. John 17. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one. So why? Verse 23 of John 17 says, that the world may know. That the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. And, and in verse 21, so that the world would believe that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, so that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. When we are one in community, the world cannot help but notice and understand that our community is different from what you can find anywhere else. So how can we walk in a manner worthy of God, as we saw in Second Thessalonians this morning, excuse me, Second Corinthians. How can we walk in a manner worthy of God? By living in unity together. What do God's kingdom and glory look like? A group of believers living in unity as a representation of the union found in God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit lived out in our hearts. I want to read you one more quote uh, from C.S. Lewis. And I, again, I really appreciated his take on this. God can show himself as he really is only to real men. And that means not simply to men who are individually good, but to men who are united together in a body, loving one another, helping one another, showing him to one another. For that is what God meant humanity to be like, like players in one band or organs in one body. Consequently, the one really adequate instrument for learning about God is the whole Christian community waiting for Him together. I pray that that's something that we strive to. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for Your Word which teaches us about You. We have not even scratched the surface of understanding You this morning. But Lord, as we read about You and we understand these small details and we see, uh, just as we saw in uh, the stars this morning, a few small details about You. Help us to revel in those details and then to want to imitate them to the world around us. Father, may Providence Church be one even as You and Your Son are one. Help us as we walk towards that to be more like you in every way. In Christ's name.